Maybe don't know. Maybe don't know. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 108 from the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am here in what's actually been really lovely, Red River Gorge, but I'm getting over a nasty cold, which you can probably hear. And that's not how I recommend starting a climbing road trip, especially in a temperate rainforest. It's incredibly difficult to get rid of a cold when you're sleeping in the cold humidity at night. So don't do it. It's not recommended. All right. I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, and it has been confirmed that Nate and I will be in Houston at Momentum Silver Street uh, for the National Cup Series, uh, as well as running some workshops on the 18th and the 19th of November. Uh, We're also going to be doing a few private or semi-private sessions while we're in town. Um, So shoot me a message if you might be interested in those. I should have more info on those up in just a few days on the website uh, and on the social medias if you follow us there. So hope to see some of you guys out there. That's Nate's hometown, and we'd really love to connect with the community down there. Um, Also... The Movement Skills ebook that is currently out on the website, um, all those drills were built on the principles that you'll be hearing about in this episode. Um, I really wanted to have this conversation before I wrapped up that ebook to make sure that I was on the right track. And uh, so all those are built on the science and research into motor learning that we're going to learn about today. And our guest today is Trevor Reagan, founder of trainugly.com. Uh, you may m- remember him from episode 64, uh, Fixed versus Growth Mindset. It's actually one of our top 10 downloads of all time. And if you have not heard that episode, you should definitely go listen to it. I get more emails about that episode than probably any other. Um, People saying that it's really changed the way that they coach. So especially if you're a coach, go listen. Uh, And and then after the episode, check out his site, trainugly.com. Again, especially if you are a coach. And don't take it from me. Um, This is actually a direct quote from Daniel Coyle, author of The Talent Code. He says, if you coach, check out trainugly.com, a cool and useful site. Um, And that guy's done his research, obviously. So go check it out. Uh, Trevor and I sat down this time at Power Company headquarters after a TEDx talk that he did in Lander uh, to discuss what he's learned about motor learning, the principles and how we can apply it to climbing. I really kind of grill him with the drills that we do um, just to see where we can make them more effective. So let's get into it. The coach usually has good intentions, but if we zoom out, what's happening is I'm robbing you of an opportunity to solve a problem, to struggle a little bit. 
like rush and when you do the normal one it's like i know the points i'm trying to make but how you get there doesn't matter right um and then you have time to ask questions this is this was weird for me because like I prefer to ask a question, hear what they say, and then go. Right. But I would like ask a question. I'm like, oh, they can't really respond. And then, like, <laughs> so it was different, but I think it's good for you to do. So Yeah, I think so too. I think anything that pushes you outside of your, your comfort zones is a really interesting thing to explore. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean you have to stay outside of your comfort zone forever. Not but, at all. Like, but it's interesting to explore. Uh, yeah, I don't think the argument is like, 24 7 find things that take you out of your comfort zone and do them it's just like pick and choose your spots and understand right. that it's never going to be comfortable <laughs> like yeah. it's not yep like and i think the ted is the perfect example like i literally speak for a living mm -hmm. and i was freaking out yeah so i can't even imagine the people that maybe that was like the first talk they've given in a while lt we were talking like as a coach before and after every meet, before and after practice, you're constantly speaking and teaching in front of high school boys. Right. So like the skill of engaging them, superpower. Yeah. That didn't make the TED Talk easier. Right. So it's like, man, no matter like what your background is, like getting up and kind of owning something in front of people is always going to be hard. Totally. And I think understanding that is important and to like bring that to big picture, it's like, hey, anytime you venture out of the comfort zone, it's going to feel weird and that's okay. And yep. just that knowledge and then getting the reps of doing that a little bit more gives you that swag of like, oh, okay. Like yep. I feel uncomfortable, but that doesn't necessarily mean I can't do this. Right, totally. Um, and racking up those reps in different ways sort of builds that confidence that, oh, I can, I can do this understanding it's not going to be that easy right and you sort of I, I anyway start to almost enjoy being in that uncomfortable sure. zone yeah like it feels so much more interesting than just uh -huh. doing whatever's my jam again i'm with you, know? you it is it gets to be <clears throat> exciting because more times than not when you venture out there in the end growth will happen you might take some bumps and stumbles and right. that's not always fun, but big picture, it's like, wow, like I learned from that. Yeah. And then that becomes more exciting and intriguing and you want to experience that more. Yep. Totally. Um, I feel like we've like jumped already yeah. into the middle of the conversation <laughs> here. But. Yeah, you might dip that in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, just to let everyone know who's who's listening, I went to the TEDx Lander talk last night to see Trevor and Lantian, both of whom have been on the podcast before, and who are two of my absolute favorite episodes. Um, Trevor's actually you're you're still in the top ten episodes all time for downloads, mm. so <laughs> people love it, and I get a ton of feedback from your episode. Nice, and it always makes me a little bit nervous. Nervous isn't the right word, but I think about it when I'm bringing on non-climbers because I know the climbing community, when they're going into their iTunes or whatever to download podcasts, they're like, I don't know that person's name and they'll just click past it. Yeah. But that that didn't happen and that makes me really happy about my audience mm. because they, they're so engaged with the content that mm -hmm. they're like, I don't know this person's name, but yeah. I bet he's got something interesting to say or he wouldn't be on here. It's, and then they awesome. share it because they love it. So it's awesome. I, I think that says a lot. Like that's what I think 
an angle to the learning process that is kind of underrated. It's being open to different areas or arenas. Um, so something I try to spend a lot of time is like, why don't we learn from the tech world? Right. They're like innovating and creating and building faster than anyone. We can steal from them. We can learn from them. We can learn from the world of education. Right. Like literally they're studying. How can we engage students better? And we can learn from the world of sports. And I think to share between the three, and there's more arenas as well. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. So to be open to different sources of information and to take those principles and figure out how to apply them in your arena, um, I think that's a skill that, again, is kind of underrated. But the fact that your audience is doing that, I think it says a lot. Yeah, I do too. It, it makes me really happy to see. And it, people should just go look at your schedule because you're everywhere all the time. <laughs> And they should go check out one of your presentations for sure mm. if you're out there. And <clears throat> I feel like my travel schedule is hectic, mm. but all I have to do is go look at yours <laughs> to feel like, oh, man, I'm, I'm barely even moving at this yeah. point. Um, so how do you keep up with that first off? Um, I just have to know from my own personal sure, reasons. Sure, I'm learning as I go. I think 2017, I learned a lot about the process that I overdid it. It was like, this is too much. It mm -hmm. got November, December hit and I was donezo. Like I right. like overdid it. And so um, my girlfriend helped a lot with this. She's like, look, going and doing these workshops, like that's what you love. And that's like the very best way to share this stuff. But she's like, if you keep doing it this often, you're, you can't sustain that. Right. And so finding the balance of like, okay, Every time I go work with a group, I get better and good things happen. So it's hard to say no to that. And right. so I'm, I'm trying to get be a little more, I guess, think about the process and like spreading out the workshops and not booking them like three a week. Right. Um, quality reps. Yes, quality reps. Um, and then kind of picking and choosing like where I want to spend my time. Um, I've scheduled a, a, a quite a few more in prisons because I've done I've done one and that was unreal. Yeah. And I always do that was for free, but I've booked like four more. Um so just kind of picking and choosing like hey, I want to spend more time here. Um because it seems to resonate. Yeah. Especially with the like reentry process. Um and I think the fascinating thing and this always blows my mind that whether I'm giving this workshop to third graders or a group of men on the inside or a major league baseball team, I give the same presentation. Right. It's the totally. same principles. <clears throat> now, the way we connect them and the stories we tell and the examples, those are always different. It's not like a rinse and repeat, but the principles of learning that we teach are the same. Yeah. And like, it's so cool to see how those connect with people. Yeah. So it, that blows my mind every time. Yeah, I love that every answer you have, you're like, oh, it's all about this learning process and I'm learning to do this. And sure. so let's, you know, let's just keep digging into that. That's that's sort of the path I wanted to go on anyway. Mm -hmm. And then your your TEDx talk last night was about learning. Mm -hmm. um, and last time we had a really great conversation about growth mindset. And I think that mm -hmm. learning is such a you know, the learning process is such a huge part of 
cultivating that growth mindset mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. let's just dig into it. And maybe the best place to start is your, I mean, I think your zoo tiger, jungle tiger analogy is a really great one mm-hmm. and probably extra powerful when you go to a prison. Right. You know, so. And that, so it's funny that everything that we talk about now falls under the jungle tiger, zoo tiger story um it can be sort of an analogy for comfort zones sure but it also describes this other side of the learning equation um that we work on uh especially when we work with sports teams it's called like motor learning which is like here are principles about how you practice right how you design a drill or practice session. And here are some ideas to make that better. Jungle Tiger, Zoo Tiger also describes that. So the idea here, if you get into motor learning, it's people have been researching for decades about the best way to build transfer and retention into practice. What they mean by that is if I practice something all week and then I go and it's game day. So uh, in the basketball world, practice, 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 Friday night is game day. Yeah. In the climbing world, okay, we're working out, we're drilling, we're doing whatever. Sorry, I don't know the terminology, but sure. it's like, okay, now I'm on the mountain. Right. Game day. Yep. Transfer and retention is, do the, like the, the progress I made in practice and the, what I saw there, is that showing up how on game How can I carry day? it over to the And game so then day. the idea with motor learning is how do you maximize retention and transfer? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a side that we've really been d- digging into. Um, and it works perfectly with sort of the mental stuff that we talked about. Like these work hand in hand. Right. Um, sometimes, and I was guilty of this, I was exposed to the motor learning research first. And so it's about, oh, yeah, you should design a practice like this. It needs to be more game-like. It needs to be random. You need to feel all the elements that you feel in a game and implement those into practice. And so we were doing that, but what you find is if you make the practice more game-like, you struggle more, you fail more, and that feels weird. Like we're used to looking good in practice. Sure. And that's where the mental side comes in. So understanding growth mindset and fear and the principles of learning and how we approach it mentally, I think starting there and building that mindset equips us for a more science-based practice. And so as we adopt a growth mindset and adopt this mentality, I think we're equipped to handle the stress and struggles and failure that we'd experience in this type of practice. Right. So each one enhances the other. Yeah, we definitely find it, that's one of the more difficult parts of when we do our workshops is getting climbers to to really embrace the, the failure mm-hmm. um, and be able to reframe their goals of that session, mm-hmm. you know, to be, I want to be able to fail at this specific thing mm-hmm. at this specific point mm-hmm. um, and having them not just perform all the time yeah you know where failure is not the goal Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a tricky thing and i'm definitely excited to dig into that Mm -hmm. um can we start with the 
the zoo tiger, jungle tiger, and the the stories and fear. Yeah, yeah. Start there, and then then I definitely want to talk about motor learning yeah. and how that all applies. Perfect. I think that's the perfect starting point. So, jungle tiger, zoo tiger, simple. It's uh, and the, when we present it, we tell a story. But the idea here is, if you had two tigers and one lived in a zoo and one lived in the jungle it's pretty easy to contrast their lifestyle. Like right. one literally sits in a box, yep. everything's done for it. The other is in the jungle hunting and finding water and doing things jungle tigers do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go through that, we contrast the environments and then like the killer question is, okay, what would happen if you took a zoo tiger and you put it into the jungle and everyone would agree it's like, ooh, it's in trouble. <laughs> like, right. And it's easy to see why that, of course it can't hunt because it spent its whole life in a cage where every meal was hand delivered. And the other question is, okay, do you see that the jungle tiger has a better shot of surviving in the wild? Why? Because it lived there. And so sort of the punchline of this is the jungle tiger learned to survive in the wild by living there. Right. This wasn't a difference in like their tools. Like one tiger had better stripes than the other. <laughs> right, it was right. the environment mm. that they lived in force them, the jungle tiger, to develop a certain set of skills. The environment that the zoo tiger lived in sort of robbed that tiger of the reps and practice to build those skills. So the argument here is that the way we approach practice and the environment that we build has a big impact on the skills that we acquire. So this whole tiger analogy is just a big picture example of comfort zones. And yep. so like the cliche everyone <clears throat> says is like, oh, out of our comfort zone is where the magic happens. And this is like right a- along And that. it's kind of scary that that's become a cliche. I know. Because you can say it, feel like you're there and not actually be there. Absolutely. That's pretty, I see that pretty often actually. <laughs> and it, it's really easy to just post it on Instagram. It's like, yeah. this is something that, and that's okay. It's like, the real good stuff in life is easy to talk about and hard to do. No one is going to be perfect with it. Right. But the idea here is the more that we do it, the better we get. It's just like any skill. So yep. jungle tigering is a skill totally. that we're not always going to be perfect with. But if the more of those reps we get, the better we get at it. And so the idea here is tigers don't, really have a choice it's like yo i live in a zoo and i can't change that or i live in the jungle we are in the wild right no matter who we are or what we do like we're in the wild and every day we are presented jungle tiger moments problems challenges obstacles and change and when we are presented those moments we get to choose what to do with it we can choose to learn from them and experience them or hide from them and avoid them so the way we talk about that is we can choose to jungle tiger those situations or we can choose to zoo tiger we've all jungle tigered a lot but if we're going to be honest we've all zoo tigered a lot as well it's an easier choice for sure it is and there's a lot working against us that will nudge us in that direction yeah so we're not trying to like shame people here that and i was guilty of this in the past when I first started this, we had more of like the yelling, the shaming, like just do it mentality of right. like, you learn like a jungle tiger, jungle tiger, everything. It's like, nah, yeah. nah, it's, hey, 
when we venture out of our comfort zone, we learn and grow and get better. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. And we're not always going to do that. But let's have some conversations about the value of doing that and sharing the science and the principles and helping people understand that it's worth their time to do that. And then the other angle that seems to hit home with people is to have conversations about, well, why do we choose the zoo tiger? Right. Because I think deep down, we all understand the concept of getting out of our comfort zone. We mm -hmm. get it, but we still choose to zoo tiger and I do it all the time. Sure. And so that's kind of where we head with this conversation is like, okay, there are probably thousands of elements at play here that lead to zoo tigering. Many of those things, like we don't really control. It's like environmental stuff and like where we live and our friends and family and stuff like that. As far as things that we can control, I think the two biggest reasons we zoo tiger stories, which are, that's like fixed mindset beliefs of, I can't learn this. I can't do this. I'm not cut out for that. Huge reason we zoo tiger. The other is fear. The fear of looking bad, the fear of getting out of my comfort zone, the fear of messing up. So these two really work together. We say stories build your cage. That's our comfort zone is literally built from our limiting beliefs. Yep. And fear is what keeps us in there. Um, so the idea here is, and where we spend the majority of our time in our workshops is, let's really unpack stories and fear. What are they? Where do they come from? And then most importantly, how do you work to like override those? The, I, I guess the thinking is, if you understand the enemy a little bit better, you're going to win a few more battles, which yeah. means we're going to spend a little more time out of our comfort zone. And so yeah. that's what we try to do. Can I, can I give you a scenario, a climbing scenario? And can we kind of talk about the stories and the fear yeah. in that scenario? For sure. So one of the examples that I see very, very often, and I've, I'm definitely guilty of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still guilty of it, even though I try to be conscious of it now. Um, where we're we have the opportunity to jungle tiger mm -hmm. but we choose to zoo tiger mm -hmm. is so when we're bouldering or when we're climbing on routes whichever it is like short rocks tall rocks whichever um boulders in particular we call problems boulder problems mm -hmm. they're they're this challenge they're this puzzle to solve they're often difficulty condensed into a few moves so it's, it's a really great learning tool. Mm -hmm. In the gym, outside, wherever it is, I often see partners or coaches when someone is struggling to figure out that boulder problem, mm -hmm. just hand them the solution. Yeah. Say, put your foot here, take that hold like this, here's what you need to do. And it feels really good mm -hmm. for the coach, for the partner. It feels good for the climber too, because it's like, oh, look what we just did. We mm -hmm. did that really quickly. But the, in my opinion, the learning process is getting sort of cut off there. Yeah, They're just being handed the solution. They don't have to go through the struggle. They're, and that's, that's a zoo tiger moment. It is. And we could choose to jungle tiger. And the problem with that you know, some people will learn from that. Some people can mm -hmm. take what just happened and say, oh, I understand why that worked right. and be able to apply it in the future. But most people that I see 
have trouble connecting those dots. Mm -hmm. So when they go outside or when they're not with their partners and they're trying to figure out the beta to, to do that boulder problem, they can't figure it out. Sure. They're not sure how to approach it. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they get stuck and need someone to, to chop that process in half and hand yeah. them the solution. You have touched on a really big idea here, which is in many ways, learning is a battle against human nature. <laughs> like mm -hmm. if we're going to really get real with it, it's that parts of our brain are designed for simply survival, right? Like that's what the amygdala is there for. It's there yep. to steer us away from danger. It's there to keep us alive and keep us safe. And one approach to that is generating this fear or uncomfortable feeling to steer us away from situations that take us out of our comfort zone. Right. Uh, which is great for survival, not great for learning and development. Right. So the idea here is the four like triggers of fear are uncertainty, attention, struggle, and change. Those four things could describe a dangerous situation. But the problem is that those four things are present in the best learning experiences as well. Right. Our amygdala is always going to work and generate fear to avoid those four things, which again, if we're in danger, is a great approach. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Go for it. Yep. But when it comes to learning and development, the tactic of avoiding uncertainty, attention, struggle, and change actually robs us of development. And that's exactly what's happening there. Right. So if I'm faced with this jungle tiger moment, something that's going to stretch me and challenge me, it's not going to be comfortable. The problem is if we don't, if we're not aware of how the amygdala works and how fear works, we assume like, Oh, I feel uncomfortable about this. I feel some fear. That means I shouldn't or can't do this, or I need to remove myself out of it. With our upgraded approach to fear, we realize like, yo, it's always going to be there. Anytime we try to venture out of our comfort zone, there's going to be some tension and fear and that's okay. Yeah. And like, that seems simple, but upgrading our approach and the, the scientific term is called reappraisal. It's like, I'm assigning new meaning to this emotion and that I feel it's not mm -hmm. a bad thing. It's normal. In fact, it's like a signal that I'm in a jungle tiger moment. Right. So the problem is again, human nature, we're going to feel this tension more times than not, if I'm a coach or if I'm the person on the boulder, we f try to find a way out of it. We want to go back to the zoo because it doesn't feel good to like have that fear. Yeah, either as the climber or the coach because the coach is like, I'm not, I'm not helping here. What's yeah. going on? So <laughs> it's tough. But the coach especially usually has good intentions like yeah. yep. you're struggling i just want to help you i want to support you totally but if we zoom out what's happening is i'm robbing you of an opportunity to solve a problem to mm -hmm. struggle a little bit now we're not saying to be reckless like we're not saying to just like throw people out and let let them like flail around and figure right. it out. It's like, we can support this. You don't just drop a zoo tiger in the middle of the nah. jungle and walk away. Right. It's just like, <laughs> there's plenty of room for support. And one of the most important words here is safety. Like we have to create a, a, an environment where I feel safe 
to jungle tiger, safe to experiment. And that's one of the most important things we can do as coaches and educators and parents is one, understand the value of this process and understand that we learn through doing. So like if I want to my client or student or kid to be a better problem solver, well, you get better at problem solving by solving problems. Right. Skills are built, you build that. And so the problem is, if every time I'm faced with a problem, you solve it for me, you're robbing me of the rep to become a problem solver. Yep. And you can re replace problem solving with any skill. Um, so often we rob people of the experience of moving through that because yeah. we want to protect them. Yeah, we want to help. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's an imperative thing for coaches to learn. Mm -hmm. Um I think every athlete should learn it as well. Exactly. Especially in a communal sport like climbing where we're right. all talking, we're all trying to help each other. Mm -hmm. Um you know, if you start to be able to reframe it as instead of oh I just helped my partner do this thing, mm -hmm. maybe what you actually did is rob your partner of this experience that yeah. that could make them better. Again, you're you're so right, and and I just want to be so clear. We're not we don't want to be reckless. We're not just saying just like yep. let them like suffer. Right. It's just allow them to like go through this process. And the question that I use a lot to hold myself accountable is: Am I here to look good, or am I here to get better? those two things usually don't happen at the same time. Right, right. So like, <laughs> if we want to, like, I can even go back to how I approached practicing for the TED Talk. When I first started, I was doing what everyone was doing, which is like, you run through it in front of the mirror. Right. And then you run through it in front of the mirror five minutes later. And I would do that like four times straight. On rep four, I was like, oh yeah, I'm crushing this. <laughs> So I look good right now. That is how we usually approach practice. We yeah. do it, we 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 got it. In motor learning, one of the biggest ideas and principles that I hope people really work to understand is there's a difference between learning and performance. Mm -hmm. Performance is what we see during the practice session. Learning is what shows up on game day. This goes back to the yep, transfer time. Transferring it over. So the tactics that lead to visible progress in performance are actually the tactics that are robbing us of learning. <laughs> so this okay. is like, it's, so this is Mind bender kind here. of counterintuitive here. But so <laughs> like, I think maybe framing it around the TED. So I could give five straight, in front of the mirror and if someone was just kind of like watching me on a security camera they'd be like oh definitely getting better yeah right uh visible performance gains but the problem is those gains are not sticky because i did it in a way that is not game like no right. one is watching five times in a row with no spacing in between so the gains that i made according to the research, are less likely to show up on game day because what I'm doing is training like a zoo tiger. This is easy, this is comfortable, 
But to get on the stage with the lights and the mic and the audience, right? that's the jungle. The problem is I'm training like a zoo tiger and then game day you throw me into the jungle. Motor Learning says, if I can make my practice session more like the game, I'm going to see more transfer. Take it back to jungle tiger. If I train like a jungle tiger and then it's game day, I'm going to see more transfer. So to build it in and use these principles in my practice. One, there are, I think three, there are more, and there's lots of studies about this. And there's a great book called Make It Stick. Uh, Robert Bjork does a lot of this research. Three ways to build what he calls desirable difficulties into our practice. One, spacing. So a big part of the learning process is forgetting. <laughs> sure. Okay. So like he literally has a lab at UCLA called the learning and forgetting lab. <laughs> That's cool. So <clears throat> how do I explain this? That when you get on the stage or you're getting, you're in the mountain or it's game day, it's like you have like one time to do that. You have to like on the spot, bring it. Right. So it's called like recall. <laughs> like I, I have to do this. And so getting good at the skill of without doing it five times, can I do it now? You practice that skill by adding spacing into your practice. And so I made a rule that when I was practicing, I had to wait three hours before doing it again. That makes it way harder. So if I did a practice run and messed up on some stuff, I have to like think about that and tweak it, but I can't just go do it again because if I do it again, I'm going to nail it because I'm fresh off the rep. Sure. But if you wait three hours and then go do it again, do you see it's more like a game? Yep. So spacing is a way to build in these desirable difficulties. The other is called uh, interleaving or like randomizing it. So what they find uh, if we take it to sports, it's that rather than shooting the same shot a hundred times, if I move and shoot different shots, that's more game-like because right. in a game, if I miss a shot, they're not like, Hey, can you get 10 more? From here? Shot <laughs> right? yeah. So like if I'm shooting a shot in a basketball game, it's, I have one shot and my eyes and brain have to go, I'm this far away, shoot it this hard. We have to make our practice like that, training our eyes and brain to have one shot from one spot and judging how hard and far to shoot it. Mm -hmm. So in building that and randomizing these reps, the idea here is, sorry, I'm all over the place. Autopilot kills real learning. Like if I just go on autopilot, I'm rinsing and right. repeating and it becomes easy. I've done five in a row, I'm yep. on autopilot. That is the enemy of transfer. So we have to find ways to interrupt autopilot. So then I have to start from scratch and recall this and bring it back up. You do that with spacing, randomization, and making it more game-like, which is, oh, go ahead. No, no, that, that's perfect. The, one of the things we struggle with is that autopilot. Um, when we're building drills into our training plans, for us it's been we constantly have to ask people to be aware of what's going on, make these drills as much about the physical process as your process of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, 
how how deep does that randomization need to go to be effective or to to be most effective mm -hmm. how deep does it need to go do you every session should you be doing if it's basketball random shots should you have a series of random shots that you do um maybe not always in the same order mm -hmm. or i mean how far does that have to go because it seems like it could be you could choose a different shot every single shot mm -hmm. and then is it still practice mm -hmm. uh, how's that how's it's that tough. work it's tough to find the balance but usually the rule of thumb is we're ready to go random earlier than you think mm -hmm. and we should spend more time making it random and game like okay. than our sort of like what we think we should do um there is a study that bjork was telling me about and i'm this isn't exactly how it went down, but you'll get the big idea. And this kind of goes back to human nature and what we think is good practice versus what is good practice. Right. Uh, so the idea was the task was to like be able to recognize these paintings and be like, oh, this person painted that. Right. So like recognizing who See did that. See the style. And the right. Painting. So the way that they, they studied this is they looked one group, they, they blocked the reps where it's like, okay, you're going to see 10 paintings of this person and then 10 paintings of this person and then 10 paintings of the next person. So it's blocked. It's like 10 shots from one spot, 10, right. 10 shots from the other. I don't know what the equivalent would be in climbing, but I would imagine there's lots of stuff like that. Yep, where bang, totally. bang, bang, yep. bang. Uh, the other group, they looked at the same amount of paintings, but it was randomized. It's like this person, that person, this person, that person. Mm-hmm. And so they trained them like that, random and blocked. And this is, a, this is why I'm telling the story, because at the end of the practice session, they interviewed them. And one of the like, ideas was to recognize how confident do you feel for the task that we're going to do in a couple of days, which is I'm going to show you one painting and you have to tell us who it is. Right. The block group, their confidence score was way higher than the random. They're like, yo, I got this. Why? Really? Okay. Because the practice was easier. It's like, yo, I'm feeling good. Yeah, yeah. The random group was like, oh, I don't know. Like it was kind of all over the place. I didn't get the autopilot of like, I got it, I got it, I got it. So the confidence of the black group was higher than the random. But then when they did the transfer test, which is okay, in a couple days, we're gonna show you like one painting, who is it from? Random group off the charts crushed the black group. That's really interesting that the confidence and the reality of it were yeah. swapped. So totally then the example in the basketball world is there was a study where it was like one group shoots a hundred shots from one. I don't know what the number is, but a bunch of shots from one spot block. Yep. The other group shoots a bunch of shots from a bunch of different spots. Then the transfer test was, okay, you're going to shoot a shot from a spot. In practice, the block group made way more. Sure. Because you can get to autopilot. Mm -hmm. They looked good. The random group missed way more. But on the transfer test, the random group will make more shots. And here's the crazy thing. They tested it where they shot the shot from the same spot the block group practiced from. And the random group made more. Wow. Because... Hmm if we're moving and randomizing, our brain is learning more of the skill of like how to judge how far to shoot and how to do right. this. So again, we go back to the question, am I here to look good or get better? 
if I want to look good, shoot 100 shots from one spot. You're going to get into autopilot, get in a groove, you'll make more. If I want to get better, the science says I should work to randomize it. I'm going to miss more, which again, we're going to bat against human nature. So think about if my grandma was watching me practice. She watches this one. I make 80 out of 100. Oh, you're so She's good like, you're at shooting. Great. You're amazing. And then I randomize and my grandma's watching. She's like, I don't know. Maybe I don't get that <laughs> praise, right? Am I it's paying like, for oh, you? You missed like half of his shots. <laughs> and so like, think about all the things we're going to battle against. Right. Like our ego is at play here. It like feels way better to get the praise or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the transfer test, when it's game day, I'm better equipped to make the shot because I practiced it more like the game. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. I'm gonna. You don't happen to know where these two studies come from, do you? I have all right of them. Right off the top of your head. I have all of them. Okay. Um, I'll get and that. I'll get you. I'll so, get that from uh, resources. This is all under the umbrella of motor learning. Uh, Richard Schmidt one of my heroes um he's passed but i had the honor of meeting with him he like wrote the textbook of motor learning um robert bjork his research is more in the like schmidt looked at skill development bjork looked at more of like uh study tactics and the funny thing is because i've had the honor of hanging out with both of them for years they were studying these things and they thought they were separate. So Schmidt's looking at motor learning, which is skill, active, moving Mm -hmm. uh, development. Bjork's looking at our study tactics and how we approach that. And then Bjork was telling me a story that they were speaking together on a panel and as they were answering questions and the conversation after is like, whoa, we're teaching the same tactics. It's all about like, randomization spacing and making a game like that that applies to how we study and learn like non-physical things but it also applies to skill development and so it's like this similar principles here um there was one more thing i was gonna say um i can't remember but i will get you the studies and stuff yeah yeah um let's talk a little bit about making it game like because that's that's another thing that I struggle with when it comes to how to best practice. Mm-hmm. Um, should the practice, how much should the practice always look like the performance? Mm-hmm. Um, if the performance is the game or the, the climb, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, how much should that look like that? And where does it leave room for drills? Sure. Um, I think the more we do it, usually the better, but the truth is you, there are limitations to it. It's just like, we can't make every single rep a hundred percent game. Like, uh, going back to the Ted practice, I can't get 200 people that I don't know to come watch me every time I practice. So it's not going to be a hundred percent game. Like, and I'll never never match the nerves that I felt when I actually had to do it. You just can't, but you can get creative and try to introduce some of the variables, uh, things that I did. One is I would always try to have someone watch cause that attention will create a little more of that uncomfortable game like feeling. I would always space it out for hours. Um, and if I messed up, 
I couldn't start over. I had to like work my way around it and solve the problem. Right. Then, so at first it was like my mom on the phone listening or my girlfriend would watch. And then I was like, oh, that's too easy. Like that becomes pretty comfortable. Right. And so then the idea was, can I start uh, doing this talk for people that don't know this? And then it was, can I find younger people? Mm. And so one of the best things I've ever done for practicing a workshop or a talk is, I don't care who you're prepping for, go find a seventh grader and try to explain it to them. Sure. Because if you can engage them and teach a seventh grader about fear or neuroplasticity, engaging them with the examples and stories, if you can do that, you're ready to rock when it's whatever audience it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, it's like, look, we can't always do this. That maybe the dream scenario to practice basketball, like shooting is it's in a game, it's five on five, there's a scoreboard, there's a crowd. We can't do that. It's okay, I'm finding ways to introduce a few more variables, but there's still plenty of time to work on our tactics and techniques. We're not saying abandon those. It's saying we can work on those and work to make it a little more game-like and random as well. Gotcha. Okay, so you know, we, we build a lot of drills into our training plan because climbing is it's a really complicated movement skill-based sport. Yep. Thousands and th- millions of different movements. Um, it's not a repetitive sport. Right. So what we've looked to do is find the small things that are repetitive mm. and introduce those into a random environment. Yeah. So we want you to focus on keeping tension while climbing these different boulder problems. Love it. Um, and for us, we feel like that works better than something like, you know, say there's a, there's a move called a heel hook where you use your heel, you use your hamstring to pull yourself over a hold. Mm -hmm. People who are bad at heel hooks will often just say, I'm going to go practice heel hooks and they'll just throw their heel on everything. And in my opinion, that doesn't work as well as saying, now let's, go around the gym and find some examples of a good heel hook, Mm. you know, and how to use a heel hook effectively. Find those examples instead of just go through the motion of putting your heel on everything. Um, And I don't know if that's effective. That's what we've come up with. And there's lots of research Mm. to support that. So human nature would be like, go bang out 200 heel hooks. Right, right. I'll look better. Again, it feels better, but it would be more effective and lead to more retention if I'm doing it in more of a game-like way where I'm not just straight up heel hooking everything. It's like when the time is right, deploy the skill. Right. And that will be a little more uncomfortable. And I, the performance, the visible performance might not be as high as just repping out a ton, but the retention and transfer will be better. Yeah. And one of the important things for us is that when you go out and you try to find those situations, oftentimes you're going to be wrong. You're going to look at it and say, oh, that's, that's where I need to use a heel hook. And then mm-hmm. you try it and you're like, oh, that didn't really work sure. all that well. I failed. But that's not really failure. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's success in learning. This isn't a situation where a heel hook is all that useful. 100%. So much more valuable than someone telling you, oh, don't even try it there. 
It's like to try and be like, oh, when it looks like this and feels like this, it seems like the move, but it's not. That's a valuable lesson, a valuable skill that you can only experience by putting yourself into that situation where you have to solve the problem. Right. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, this is something that um, some there's a, a baseball team I've been working with and we're working on building this into like the way they practice pitching and hitting. Okay. That like baseball is super blocked. If you think about like batting practice, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's not game-like. Um, like they move in, they're throwing like the same pitch. It's slow. And um, I, I think I'm allowed to talk about her, but Cece, she's uh, one of the like mental training coaches for this team. Okay. She has a term called uh, junk food confidence, which kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is <clears throat> in batting practice, it's like I'm getting really easy pitches. It's the same pitch. It's mm -hmm. moved in and I'm just cranking homers. Right. And I feel good and my confidence is high. It's not like a game at all. And so what she calls this is sometimes our intention is, oh, we just need to feel confident but our approach to building that confidence is junk food. It's just like, it feels good, it tastes good, but the truth is that's not really sustainable. It's kind of empty calorie confidence. It's like when it gets right. to game night, it's like I actually haven't developed the skill or practiced this skill. So, And we've already learned that confidence doesn't have a direct correlation. Going back to the, yeah. exactly. So it's like we can build real confidence, which is, I'm seeing game-like pitches and I'm not going to hit every second ball into the stands and the whole crowd during batting practice is like, oh my goodness, this guy's amazing. It's maybe I'm going to miss a few and maybe I'm going to strike out in batting practice because I'm getting real pitches and I don't know what the pitch is. That again is going against human nature, but the thinking is if I'm seeing more of those pitches those reps are going to lead to more transfer and prep me for what it's really like in the game. Sure. Now, question about that. If it's baseball, if it's that situation, or if it's basketball, for instance, if a, if a player, if a batter or if a shooter has issues with their mechanics, mm -hmm. they're just not quite releasing their shot right or they're not following through with their swing or whatever that mechanical issue is mm -hmm. is there then value into slowing things down enough for them to focus on that mechanic yep and then grad do you gradually mm -hmm. make it more game like randomize the pitches speed yep. up the pitches so john kessel he's one of my mentors and he comes from the volleyball world he says there's a time and a place for this. And the idea with like more of the traditional or blocked practice would be use it to accomplish two things. What does this look like? What does it feel like? And as soon as I get that back, it's like, okay, there's a like hitch in my swing. Let me spend five minutes on a tee or whatever, like getting this hitch right. And oh, this is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. Then I can go back. Now step it up. Exactly. And now we don't have to like put on the lights and make it a hundred percent game. Like it's just like, now I'm going to give you more like live pitches. And even within that, say we're working on a specific part of the swing. 
that doesn't mean I have to only throw you fastballs. I can right. throw you fastball, curveball, changeup, totally. and you don't know what's coming. Right. So it's more like a game, mm -hmm. the skill of reading a pitch and deploying my technique. I'm getting those reps, but I'm still working on my technique. So it could even be a specific part of the swing. We're working on like our back pivot foot. We can focus on that, but the idea is we don't want you to just stand there and just go pivot, 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 pivot. Right. It's like, we want you to do the full swing right. for a ball that's coming at you that's been thrown by a human. We're focusing on one element of the swing, but you're still getting the full rep where you're reading the pitch and swinging. Yeah, I like that you just said focus on one element of the swing while you're getting that full rep. But do the whole thing. Yeah, so... so we, we, we try and build these systems of practice to learn the basic elements of climbing, how, as, as we see them, the basic elements of movement. Mm -hmm. And we often, rather than say, just get on super easy terrain and try this, we're asking people to climb specific boulder problems mm -hmm. that are oftentimes considerably easier than their top level in order to focus on this one this one element of their you know whether it's tension mm -hmm. say it's tension that's something we've worked a lot on focus on this element of your tension specifically in your legs mm -hmm. while you're still working out this problem you're still it's still game day mm -hmm. but it's not at the same level as yep. the real game it's more like a game which will lead to more transfer um Another principle of motor learning is whole is better than part. Our intuition says break up a skill and just practice like just to follow through a bunch right. of times. Right. Then I practice with my legs. It's like shoot the shot. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely focus on one element of the skill, right. but do the full one. Because like when you're doing it in real life, you have to do everything works together. So the idea is the more reps you get doing it all together, the better it works. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's really important. And I, but I do think there's value in selecting one element and working on that and focusing on that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of great programs that we work with use visual feedback, where they have an iPad set up that's on video delay. There's like a two dollar app that does this, and so they try to make a kind of a game like they call them uh, in the sports world small sided games, which is. Um, we're gonna like create a game-like environment in, within a drill. So it's not just five on five, it's like two on two. So there's game elements, but it's a drill. Sure. So in these small-sided games, we're getting more game-like reps and more reps, but then we're using visual feedback where we build it into the drill of, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing with a focus. I go to the iPad with a coach. What's the focus? My pivot foot, whatever it may be, my follow through. We get the visual feedback. We watch together. Wow, I didn't follow through that time. I didn't follow through that time. Ooh, right. that one looked good. Now I'm back in. Mm. So what they find is this visual feedback is better than like any words a coach could say. Right. And so that's kind of an effective approach and it allows us to get game-like reps in the small-sided game and whatever... Like we've built that drill to focus on a certain thing. Um, and then there are manipulations that can encourage this. So like, say we were teaching a group of basketball players to shoot left-handed layups. 
old school approach is like, hey, we're just going to spend like 20 minutes, no defense. So the better approach would be, let's show you a video of what it looks like. Let's spend five minutes with no defense, blocking it out, repping it out. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Giving them the visual feedback. It's like, okay, okay. Then put them into a two-on-two, one-on-one or three-on-three, small-sided game, not five-on-five, and have the iPad and say, if you shoot a left-handed layup, it's worth four points. Hmm, cool. Now, they're playing the game, but you use a manipulation to encourage them to do it more. Right, they're trying to find that situation. And now they've had the, the time, the five or 10 minutes of getting what it looks like and feels like. They're not gonna be perfect in the small side of the game, but the reps that are they're getting now are more valuable. And helping them understand that process and teaching them these principles, they're gonna be more open to doing something like that. And then that will actually stick. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, I'm gonna give you another scenario. I'm totally using this as like my own this selfish is great. time. Yeah, so, no um, when we do our workshops with youth teams, we we spend day one is with the coaches. We run them through the workshop so that they know what the kids are going to be learning. We mm-hmm. talk to them about the language of coaching, how to cultivate a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And then day two, we work with the kids. We, we go through the drills and through the, you know, how to change your awareness, how to reframe the goals while we're climbing. At the same time, we're working with the coaches on asking the right questions mm-hmm. and, and using the right language. Um, then day three is a mock competition. Mm. In that mock competition, what we've been doing is after each kid's time on the wall, we then either their coaches with us or just us, depending on how many coaches, how many kids, will have a, a conversation with that, that climber about what went well, mm-hmm. what do you feel like you could improve on the next time, you know, how did it feel overall? And one of the surprises is that the kids get very, very emotional about these mock competitions mm-hmm. as if it was a real competition, mm-hmm. which I think is a, you know, after having this conversation with you, I think that's a really valuable asset to have. Mm-hmm. How can I make that better? Is it going to be, do we need that visual element? Mm-hmm for the kids to be able to bring them as soon as they come off the wall, let's watch a video of what you just did and let's Mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be more helpful? What can I do to provide even better, stickier feedback? It's great. Um, Jamie Morrison, former USA uh, women's volleyball assistant coach, now the head coach of the Netherlands national women's volleyball team. He said, it's best to give feedback in an environment and situation where they can immediately go try it. Right. So like, and I think about all the times, like usually we give feedback after the game and have break down the game and blah, blah, blah. And then it's, I don't even see you guys for three days and then we're back in practice. Right. The truth is I'm not going to remember most of the things we talked about, even if they were like valid points. So if we approach it like Jamie Morrison, it's like, okay, I'm going to give feedback in a way where we can go try to fix it live. Like, so maybe a better idea would be, and, and you just 
people get creative with this. Like USA Volleyball is amazing at this where they literally build feedback situations into the drill. It's like the way we organize it is I play for two minutes. My video delay app, you can adjust the delay. So it's like play for two minutes, watch for two minutes. I'm back in. So hmm. I'm doing it. I'm watching it. Right. I'm seeing what hmm. I did well, what went well, what could use work. Um, and then I go back in and try. The one suggestion I would really encourage people to use in this visual feedback. When you're watching, there's probably 57 things that could be corrected. Right, totally. It's best to be like, in this block of time, we are watching and caring about one specific part of this. And that's all we're going to talk about at the iPad station because it's so overwhelming and confusing to be like, Oh, your hand did this, your foot did this, this, right. this did that. It's yep. for these five minutes. We care about this. We're going to put you into this situation at the iPad station. You're getting feedback. And the only thing we're looking about and talking about is that. Okay. So, so during our mock comps, we always have two, two boulders that the kids have to do. They do it in the exact timing and scenario that a real competition happens where they'll have three or four minutes on the wall to figure out the boulder problem, five minutes of rest in between, three or four minutes to figure out the next boulder problem. So looking at it like a sport like volleyball, basketball, whatever, we don't have to give them the exact same boulder problem, the exact right. same scenario. So it's not like, here's what happened on this boulder problem. Let's watch it. Let's talk about it. Now go back out and do that boulder problem again. It mm -hmm. can be a new boulder problem. Absolutely. Great. And it may be valuable for us to have a conversation with the coaches, decide on what each climber needs to focus on the most exactly. and make that the whole point of it. Not say, oh, here are these three, four things that we saw happen. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's spend this whole time watching this video, mm -hmm. talking about where we see this thing happening, mm -hmm. and then let's refocus and try to apply yeah. it to the next boulder problem. I love it. And I just think I can't say enough about the value of the visual feedback, that there's been so many times when we're working with a team and a lot of athletes have never had something like that. Right. Where rather than me spending... 10 minutes being like, your elbows out on your shot, you're kicking your leg out. Like saying that usually doesn't change anything. Right. But I've seen so many times where you just like have the iPad and a player watches and like, I never knew I did that. And it's just like a thousand times more valuable than me trying yep. to tell that to him. Another idea, I don't know if this applies to, to what you guys do, is in the visual feedback, we also have some visual and video of someone doing it like we want to do it. Right, right. So being able to contrast, it's like, uh, oh, um, Steve Nash, this is what it looks like when he shoots, like great technique and form. Yeah. We show that, we talk about the skill keys, we say, okay, we're going to just work on this dip action in our shot. Now we're going to go practice it. We have visual feedback and we can contrast that, like look at your dip, look at his dip, Ask right. them, are they the same? What do right. you think is different? And then go try. And so like using different senses to build into our feedback mm -hmm. is great. And just seeing it is valuable. 
Yeah, we, we do use examples um, in our tension workshop specifically. We use a video of a climber named Jimmy Webb who's, mm-hmm. who's an excellent mover. And his tension is uh, better than almost anyone I've ever seen. So mm-hmm. we use a video of him. And actually, tell me what you think about the effectiveness of this in the like pre-workshop um, classroom time we show this video mm-hmm. and we don't say a whole lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, then after we go in and we work on these skills, we bring them back into the classroom, show the video again. Mm-hmm. Then we talk about it and point out, mm-hmm. here's where he's doing this, here's where he's doing this. Sure. You know? And everyone kind of gets it. That makes everything click. We mm-hmm. haven't used uh, a contrast where we have the video of Jimmy Webb queued up and we sure. can drop the videos of them in to right. say, here's how Jimmy does this. Sure. Here's how you're doing a similar move. Um, yeah. And, and the idea there is like, we're not shaming people. <laughs> like, sure. It's not sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you're not Jimmy Webb. <laughs> like, <'cause, laughs> right. And uh, so we do it to contrast. So we have a model. Yeah. Something that we found though, and sorry for all the basketball stuff, but no, no, this is, um, this is great. So like a lot of, some of the teams I work with are like high school or middle schoolers. And I'd bust out videos of LeBron and um, Chris Paul. And those are cool. And yeah. we can learn from them. Yeah. But we, we ran some experiments once where it's like, okay, I'm going to show those. And say I'm working with a group of like seventh grade girls. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to find a video of a ninth grade girl doing right. this. Right. And what I found is that leads to a little more ignition because it's one thing to watch Jimmy Webb do something. Right. And if I'm an eighth grader, it's like, yeah, that's cool. That's LeBron. <laughs> like that, of course, LeBron can of do that. Of course, he's so good at that. But if I can get to the point of, whoa, that's someone that's just a couple years older than me. They kind of look like me. They're kind of right. like me. If yep. they can do it, so can I. Cool. Uh, Daniel Coyle calls that like ignition. And it's one of the most powerful motivators. Seeing someone that's like your size or kind of like you. And that will lead to a little more motivation of like, ooh, I think I could do this. And so we're not always going to be able to find those videos, but I think there's some upside of show the the Jimmy Webb and then also have someone that's like maybe just a little bit above who, whatever audience we have doing it, proving the point of you don't have to be Jimmy Webb to do this. Right, cool. I really love that. Okay, so before we wrap this up, I have, I have one question that kind of goes back to something we talked about. Um, just because I'm talking so much about here's our workshop, how would you make it better? Mm-hmm. And I, I really value that I, and I want to implement a lot of this. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things we have trouble with, um, particularly in our coaches' workshops, is getting the coaches to break out of that um, just give the beta. Just say, oh, I think you should put your foot here, put your foot there. And what we do in these coaches' workshops is we'll, I give them, we we talk a lot about it. We spend an hour and a half discussing growth mindset, asking questions, Mm. the better ways to give feedback Mm -hmm. to promote the learning process. And then the next day, the next morning, we go out, we all climb together, and the goal is to struggle through coaching each other better. Yeah. And 
so often I'll walk around to a group of coaches and the immediate feedback they're giving when another coach is on the wall is, oh, I think you should put your foot here and you should put your foot there and you should do this. You know, there's no, it's tough for them to break out of that mold that we've all kind of come up in climbing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tactics for getting coaches, players, whatever to break out of that? I think, (laughs) and these are all things that I've learned in, through experimentation that old school Trevor used to kind of like, just be like, oh, that way is wrong. Do it this way. Trust right. me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, maybe that will change someone. But most people, if you're attacking, their amygdala flares up and then they feel threatened and they just shut down. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't want to be attacked. Yeah. Um, and so I found that it's better, but it takes a bit longer to sort of like, backdoor it which is why we use jungle tiger so much yeah like that's all that is it's i'm telling you a story about two tigers everyone would agree that yeah of course the jungle tiger has a better shot of surviving in the wild than the zoo tiger Mm -hmm. cool well if you're on board with that that should influence the way we practice as well and so finding the hooks the way to like build into it like a backdoor way maybe for like the feedback and people robbing um, the athletes of opportunities to solve problems and struggle. It's like starting from a different way of like, okay, our brain learns by doing. So uh, it has to experience something in order to acquire the skill. Now, of course we can visualize and do stuff, but big picture, it's like, I have to get reps to build a skill. Well, every coach would agree with that. Yep. Then you build on that. Most everything is a skill. Problem solving is a skill. Moving through an obstacle is a skill. Resilience is a skill. Friendliness is a skill. How do you get good at skills? By practicing it. Okay, now we go back to climbing. If I want to get better at solving a problem, which is like, I have to figure out to put my hand here, my foot here. I think it's right. Let me try it. Yeah, the key is you have to figure it out. Exactly. Or I'm stuck here. What What do I do? If I solve the problem for you, I robbed you of the rep. It would be the same as we're in the weight room and we're doing a set of 10 squats. And when you get to that zone of, I'm really like pushing here, the the eighth and ninth, where it's like, that's the magic. It would be the equivalent of me coming in and be like, I got those last two reps for you. Right. Totally. So I just like, like, cause the the point of lifting and training is we want to get to that point of resistance. And so maybe using a metaphor like that. I like that metaphor a right? lot. Because yeah. so, like if you said that to anyone, they'd be like, oh, that wouldn't be smart. It's like, well, that's exactly what we're doing here. Right. Totally. So I find that if we can make a point using a, an example outside of the arena, most people are like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But then you bring it back to this. So rather than just being like, let them solve the problem, it's like, Let's talk about doing squats. And what would happen if I stepped in and did the last three for all my athletes? Yep. Would that be a good approach? You'd get really strong. Yeah. And then it's like, <laughs> then we go, do you see that that's the same? Right. Totally. We, totally. I like that analogy a lot because physical training is so much easier to quantify yeah. than, than all of this, than mm-hmm. practice, than growth mindset. Um, there aren't numbers attached to this stuff. So it's yeah. it's hard for people to have a a concrete thing to grasp onto. I I think like most of our punchlines and principles we use talking about building muscles (laughs) because it's like 
people just get that. It's like, yep, uh, I build a muscle through practice. It takes time. It takes struggle. And I'm down to do that. And I would, I'd be down to invest months to seeing physical changes. Skill development is the same. It yep. takes practice. It takes struggle. And it takes time. And then the other idea, and I talked about this last night, and I'll go to bat on it. It's like, we're fully aware. We're all not going to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the gym. We're all not going to just be jacked. Right. But we all know we can make physical changes and we can build any muscle and make it stronger. And everyone's on board with that. Most people. Yeah. Learning skills is the same. We're all not going to be, what's his name? Jimmy Webb? Jimmy Webb. God. We're all not going to be LeBron and Jimmy Webb. We're not all going to be Einstein, but we can all get better at any skill. Totally. We sell people in the weight room talking about muscles and stuff because we get it. And then we bring it back to skill development. Yeah. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to wrap this up because <laughs> I've taken up your whole morning at this point asking my own selfish questions here. <laughs> But, you know, our, our community really has responded to you and to your style. I send a lot of people to your website. Mm. I use, actually use your videos, um, tell people about you in a lot of my presentations and then use some of your videos explaining mm. growth mindset. Um, and I appreciate that you are picking out these gems from the research and then presenting them in a way that's that's consumable for people and you're connecting these dots and i appreciate that a ton i think that's a hugely valuable thing i appreciate that um, so thanks for coming on again anytime um one of these days we're gonna have a conversation without a microphone in our hands <laughs> and that's gonna be really Seriously. fun oh, man. um if i were to because i know my community eats up your stuff and they love it if I were to gather a handful of questions from them that they might have for you, one of the times when I'm in Denver or that you happen to be in Denver too, which mm -hmm. I don't know if that has ever happened, but can we sit down and yeah. do this again? Um, anytime. Yes. Cool. Another thing some groups have been doing because we find that like questions come up and there's been a few companies that every month at the end of the month, they gather questions throughout the month. They send them to me. I record a video. I just sit in my office and go through the questions, record a video, send it to him. Oh, shit. That's amazing. So even more efficient. Yeah. But I would love to do it over beers in Denver. Cool. Either way, I'm cool. Awesome. It'd be awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it a ton, man. No problem. So much. So. No problem. Thank you. You're the man. Thanks. That is a, is a big offer. And uh, I'm going to give that to our patrons first. If they've got enough questions, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, if they don't, we'll poll our Facebook community and get some questions from them. That's going to be a future episode. Um, looking forward to it for sure. Again, thanks to Trevor for doing this a second time. I truly appreciate his efforts to aggregate the research and methods and, and find ways to make approachable tactics for learning. It's, it's tough to do. It's tough to look at all the research, understand what's been looked at, what hasn't, what works, what hasn't, and, and then come up with methods that actually work for real human beings, not in a, in a study of some sort. So 
I appreciate that. As a coach, it's incredibly valuable for me. And again, if you're a coach, if you're someone who wants to learn, if you're someone who has a climbing partner who you're regularly giving beta to or helping out, I suggest you go to trainugly.com, check out his website, look through all those resources. They're amazing. Watch the videos. Um, I'll have a link directly to trainugly.com right there in the show notes in your pocket supercomputer. While you're there, you'll also find a link to our movement skills ebook, which again was, was built with these principles in mind. Um, drills developed to help you learn specific climbing skills based on these principles of motor motor learning so check that out if you're a coach if you're someone who has holes in your movement skills if you're a climber who thinks you don't have holes in your movement skills chances are you probably do so go check that out powercompanyclimbing.com slash ebook there's also a link right there in your pocket supercomputer all right you guys know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com, on the Instagrams, on the Pinterests, on the Facebooks, not on that Twitter machine, because even when we have head colds and sound ridiculous, we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. coaching or when you're working with a coach and the, the coach knows the answer mm-hmm. the coach is then trying to lead them into getting the answer for themselves mm-hmm. and they're just not getting it yeah at what point does the coach say and what is the best tactical way to say here's the answer yeah uh, it's tough like so kessel he's so good at this his rule is and you, you touched on it. It's like, show them where to look, but not what to see. So we're like guiding them. Yep. And then it's like, it's asking as many questions as you can. Like, um, God, USA Volleyball is so good at this. And, and this we, feels like a struggle, right? Yeah. Like when I'm working with other coaches, yeah. they want to ask like one question, get the right answer, and right, boom, right, right. it's done. So like, a lot of the USA coaches, they're so good at this. So like, a player will just like shank a serve out of bounds. Right. 99% of people would be like, 
what the hell is that? Or, or not say anything. Tom Black, one of the coaches, is go, he goes, how'd you do that? And that like leads to a pretty, it's just like, oh, I'm the timing, something must have been weird. And so now in asking that question, I'm like learning about like the physical skill. Right. So like, how did you do that? <laughs> is like, that has to be a thousand times more valuable than like, don't serve it out of bounds or yeah. some stuff. So I think there's power in questions of, and I've seen, uh, sorry, uh, there's like a golf guy that does this like, um, in teaching a skill, he's like, okay, if you wanted to make the ball spin this way, how would you swing? And li- literally a five-year-old, he did this on the stage, would be like, oh, I have to like kind of come at it like this. If you wanted it to curve this way, what would you do? Come at it like this. He just taught them why you hook and slice. Right. Right. And so through questions, because it's like, we kind of get it. So how did you do that? If you wanted, okay, so it's like, I shank it that way. How did you do that? Well, I must have made contact this way. If you wanted it to go that way, what do you think we should do? It's like, oh, my hand needs to slow down, so I contacted here. So I'm like guiding them to like the toss was wrong or whatever it may be through questions. Right. I like that. Asking them, like, instead of saying that was wrong, how yeah. do we make it better? Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, how did that happen? Yeah. What caused that? He's doing that with Olympians and they're responding. It's just like, huh, how'd you do that? And it's like, that's all building this amazing culture where it's like everything we're learning from everything. Yeah. Um, But when I just, I'll never forget that moment when he asked that question, like that, like got burned into my head of like, whoa, I think there's a lot to that. Hmm. Um, So it's just like asking the right questions and guiding them to the solution without telling them and then maybe there's going to be a time where it's just like look you got to do it like this yeah after yeah, at some point you do have to yeah and and just be like now let's go try and i think part of that like struggling to get the answer mm-hmm. is going to help it stick anyway um, well we know that as long as you add another right so that's <laughs> that goes into more of bjork stuff so it's like the idea with contextual interference is if i have to struggle a bit there'll be more retention um so that's why I remember papers that I wrote in high school, some of them, and yeah. none of the multiple choice tests. <laughs> right, so like, right, right. so like there was a yeah. lot like the counties of Wyoming and I'd have flashcards and I would get an A on the test, Yeah. but autopilot. Yeah. So I, 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 the performance was good, learned it for a day, regurgitated. Yeah. But damn, I can remember like three papers that I wrote. Why? Because you do the research, you take the notes, you put it into your own words. There's more interference, which means more retention. Yeah. And so like, and then the examples of that are like, if I had to, if I was in a city for a week and only used my phone to go to Starbucks every morning, and then I went back to the city a week later and someone's like, okay, get rid of your phone, find right. Starbucks. I'd never find it. Yeah. Never. Totally. But if I experience I, that all the time. All the time. <laughs> And so you've done, I did it, like, I've been in Kansas City for, like, a week, and it's just like, oh, I, I didn't learn anything. Yep. Because the phone robbed me of the contextual interference. Totally. If only twice I didn't have a phone, I'd remember it next week. Yeah, absolutely. I used to be so good at directions, mm-hmm. and recently I've discovered that 
if if I don't have a phone charger and my phone's almost dead and I need to get somewhere, I'm panicking. Yeah, same. Like, shit, I don't know how to get there. I've driven there five times this week and I have no idea where I'm so going. So it's, a, it's a, just another example, and I wish I would have thought of it on the thing. It's the phone robs us of the contextual interference, the struggle, which will lead to less retention. Yeah. It's like proving the performance is great. I get there on time, feels good. But, so that's looking good. Getting better might be, I'm going to go on my own. I kind of got lost here, but the next time I'm going to be a little better because in getting lost, you have to solve the problem or whatever. A little less comfortable, way more retention. Yeah, we used to play this game when we, my friends and I, we all first started driving. Cincinnati is a really confusing way <laughs> of streets. So we would blindfold someone, drive to the middle of wherever, and then put them in the driver's seat and they have to figure out how to get back. That's amazing. You know, and yeah. and by you know, after doing that for a few months just for the fun of it, yeah. we all know Cincinnati so well. Amazing. Anywhere we end up, I'm like, Oh yeah, I know where I'm at. Like I've Unreal. gotten out of here before. So I know. I I've been in Denver a year and a half and I use my phone still. Yeah. It's stupid. Yeah. What a good example of these principles yeah. in real life. Totally. Hmm. Cool. All right, man.